Will you stand with me and let's read our scripture together this morning. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of our, your elect sister greet you. This is God's word. You may be seated. I hope you have your sermon notes form. I hope you have a pen. I hope that many of you will take notes this morning. Uh, I have a lot to say and a little bit of time to say it. So uh, put a helmet on and let's go. Uh, this sermon series uh, could very well and was na- uh, named for this letter. Second John is the littlest of the little letters. The shortest document in the entire New Testament. It contains just 13 verses as compared to the 15 verses of 3 John, where we'll be next week, and the 25 verses of both Jude and Philemon. In the Greek manuscript, it consists of just 246 words. I was thinking about the 500-word essays we used to have to write in school, and this is just half of one of those. But in this little letter, and if you have your uh, pen ready, the three major headings um, that we encounter, uh, a unique greeting, first of all, a familiar theme, and a serious warning, a unique greeting, a familiar theme, and a serious warning. In verses 1 to 3, John opens with a unique greeting. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. John doesn't identify himself by name here but simply as the elder, um, by which we may assume, I think, that John was known by those to whom he wrote this letter. If I were to write to you and just sign it, the pastor, you'd know who I was. And if I just signed it, the pastor, you'd think you were in trouble. But uh, John would have been well on in years by the time he wrote these letters. Uh, Most scholars believe that... uh, these letters were written in the, the final century of, or final decade rather, of the 
first century A.D., so somewhere between 90 and 95 A.D. is probably just about right. But the title elder is actually translated from the Greek presbyteros, which indicates both an official position and the authority that went with it. He writes to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And neither the elect lady nor her children are named, nor are there any personal names mentioned in any of these 13 verses. Neither are we told the city or even the region where they lived. So we have to ask a question, who are the elect lady and her children, and does it matter? Well, it's clear that John is writing to someone, in fact, a family of someones, whom he loved. They mattered to him. Was the elect lady an actual individual? Some think she was. I happen to believe, on the contrary, along with many others, that she was not an actual person. But instead, the elect lady is a metaphor for a local church for which John, in his official role as elder, had oversight. Well, why do I believe that? Well, let's begin with the word elect, the elect lady. In Greek, the, the word is eklektos. It means chosen. It means chosen. It has the connotation of not only being selected, but having been chosen out of something or out of somewhere or out of a group of people. And in other parts of the New Testament, this this word's used for those who have been chosen by God out of the world to be his special possession, to to love him, to serve him. And it's the word that Paul used when he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. There's that word, eklektos. Secondly, in this short letter, John seamlessly transitions from the second person singular, and the Greek word there is y'all, uh, to the second person plural, again in the Greek, all y'all. And, and back again. You need, to, you need to learn those words. Leading us to conclude that, that the apostle was writing not just to an individual, but rather a group. He was writing to a community. And third, it's common throughout the Bible for the people of God in their relationship to God to be spoken of in feminine terms. For example, in various parts of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is referred to as a virgin, or the daughter of Zion, a bride, a mother, even a, a widow. In the New Testament, Paul spoke of the Corinthian church as betrothed to Christ as a bride to her husband. Peter described another church as she who is in Babylon chosen together with you, probably a, a metaphorical reference to the church in the city of Rome. So for at least these three reasons, I consider the elect lady to be a personification rather than a person, not not an individual, but rather the church to whom John, the apostle and elder, is writing. Now down in verse 13 of Second John, now, the elder closes the letter by relaying greetings from the children of your elect sister, probably meaning another church, perhaps the one of which John is the pastor. We don't know. Still today, we refer to other local churches who are faithful to the Lord Jesus as sister churches. Well, what about her children? They're most likely the individual members of the church. And again, we can observe that the Israelites are referred to throughout the Old Testament 
as the children of Israel. Jesus frequently addressed his disciples as little children. In other parts of the New Testament, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are called beloved children, the children of God, children of promise. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Apostle Paul referred to the disciples in the province of Galatia as my little children. And over and over again in 1 John, which we just concluded a couple, two weeks ago, the Apostle addressed his readers as his little children and children of God. So John says that he loves this church in truth. And he adds, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Now, it's difficult uh, to to miss the fact that, that no less than four times in this first three verses, John employs the word truth. Authentic Christians are commanded to love one another, love our neighbors, even love our enemies. What John is saying here, I think, is that truth is the ground, it's the basis of this reciprocal love that we are to render to one another in the family of God. Truth is the basis of reciprocal Christian love. Now think about this. In a community that is as diverse, therefore as relationally challenging, amen, as the church, every one of us struggles with the command of God to love one another. If you don't, you're lying. It staggers us because we simply do not feel even the slightest affection for some other Christians. One biblical scholar wrote that we love each other not because we are temperamentally compatible or because we are naturally drawn to one another, but because of the truth that we share. We love each other not because we are temperamentally compatible or because we're naturally drawn to one another, but because of the truth that we share. And I'm going to guess that as you watched that video, some, most of you, probably felt some affinity with those people. You've never met them. You may meet them someday. You may not. You may not meet them until heaven. But you felt an affinity with them. You were drawn to them. Why? Because you share, we share in the truth. And we share in the mission of advancing that truth. Another writer put it this way, that the communion of love is as wide as the communion of faith. See, the one thing that we share in common with believing Christians around the globe is the truth. And that takes the, the feelings of love, I think, out of the equation entirely. Here is the, the great uniqueness of agape, that it transcends all of the other things that may divide us. Geography, history, language, culture, politics, temperament, NFL allegiance, and, and so much more. See, we, we love Christians we've never met because, like we, all of them have embraced the truth as it's been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Feelings of affection may rise and fall. Agape abides in truth. 
As Al Jarreau used to sing, we're in this love together. We've got the kind that will last forever. In expressing love for the elect lady and her children, John says two things about that love and three things about the truth that provides its basis about that love. He says, first, that he loves them. Second, that all who know the truth love them. Notice, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. But about the truth, he says, first, that we know it, or more specifically, that we've come to know it objectively. Secondly, verse 2, he says that the truth abides in us, that it lives in us as a present, indwelling, transforming power or force, if you will. And third, verse 2, it's with us and will be with us forever. Truth and love are the glue of the church. You wonder how the, how the church survives, right? I mean, so diverse in so many ways. But the things that tie us together are truth and agape. Check it out. There, there are a lot of well-meaning Christians that think that the church would be more loving and more unified if we were simply willing to compromise on the truth. Don't be so legalistic, they'll say. Be more inclusive of divergent religious views and divergent lifestyles, they say. See, but nothing could be further from the truth. Don't you believe that? What John is telling us is that we will never increase the love factor in the church by diminishing or abandoning truth. Because agape love is dependent on objective truth. Boy, we could linger here, couldn't we? But we need to press on. Notice with me that John's greeting is given in the form of a promise, not a prayer. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I I don't intend to linger here either, except to observe what John is expressing. It's a promise or, if you will, a statement of fact. Just compare this briefly to the greetings that Paul extends at the start of his letters. For example, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the Corinthians, he wrote simply, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in every letter of Paul, the same verbiage is present in each of his greetings with only minor variations. Call it a wish, if you'd like, or a prayer or a blessing, but it's always the same in Paul's letters. But here in Second John, verse 3, the apostle uniquely turns it into a promise, a statement of fact. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. They will be with us. Why? Because God has promised that they will. They are his gifts to us. We, we find their source in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. By the way, don't miss the carefulness of John's description there of who Jesus actually is, Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. They're received in truth and love, and they issue forth in an increasing and, and really never-ending flow of truth in our lives individually as well as in the church. Man, that's just, that's just the introduction. 
So much to think about in just three brief verses. In verses 4 to 6, then, John reminds us of a familiar theme, or if you will, familiar themes, plural. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. John returns here in Second John to the theme or the grouping of themes that, that he emphasized in longer form in First John, namely truth, love, and obedience. Those were the drums that John was beating in the first letter. Truth, love, and obedience. In verse 4, truth. In verse 5, the commandment to love, and in verse 6, the necessity of obedience, at the center of which is obedience to the essential commands to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, dial in with me to verse 4. John says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Now, either John went and visited this church or, or someone from their church came and visited him. And so he's reporting what he rejoiced over. And the thing I love about the way John phrases it is that it's joyful without being excessive in its exuberance. I rejoiced greatly. There's the joy. It's abundant. It's real. But here's what I rejoice in. I rejoice to find some of your children walking in the truth. Not all, some. So it's not only real, it's realistic. They aren't all walking in the truth, but some are. On the one hand, it's an affirmation. On the other, it's a gentle rebuke. In verse 5, he goes on, And now I ask you, dear lady. Now let me ask you, church. Do you think that John genuinely loved this church that he's writing to? I do. Do you think you respected them? I do. Do you think that his love and his respect constrained his writing here or his speech? Again, I do. See, he could have commanded. He could have demanded. He was an apostle after all. He, he, he could have just exerted his authority as an apostle and an elder, but he didn't. He appealed to this church. And now I ask you, dear lady, I ask you, what does he ask? He asks that they obey the ancient commandment that we love one another. And then in verse 6, he affirms what he affirmed in the previous book, that, that to love is to walk according to his commandments. And as we observed in a previous session, the commandments of God become the guidelines to love. You ever think of the commandments of God that way? That they are the guidelines to love. Some, some would say, well, the, the commandments of God really interfere with love. It's not the witness of Scripture. The commandments of God are, are guidelines to love, and they become the guardrails 
for genuine love. Like someone once said years ago that that the commandments of God are like the the bumpers that, that go in the gutters at the bowling alley for children, right? So your ball never goes in the gutter. And if you're following the the commandments of God, they become the guardrails for love. To fail in obedience, then, is to fail in love. Now, I'm moving rather quickly, and I have moved rather quickly through these first two points because my goal is to give focus to the serious warning that's contained then in verses 7 through 11. For many deceivers, John writes, have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, if you were here for the series through First John, you might be saying to yourself right now, well, there's another familiar theme. And you'd be right, because here in this letter, John returns to the theme of deceivers who have gone out into the world. In verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. John first introduced this thought in 1 John 2, verses 18 to 19. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. I just want to pause right there and just observe that what John is saying is that these deceivers had originally been part of the church. Somewhere along the line, they, they themselves became deceived, and they went off the rails, and because of that, they left the church. So these aren't, you know, these aren't green meanies coming from the outside. These are these are people who have had an experience of the gospel, who have had an experience of the church, who perhaps for all the world looked like faithful Christians at one time, but became deceived. And this word translated deceiver in Second John 7 is planos. It's a, it's a very interesting word. It's the word from which we get our word planet. Um, so named because the ancients lacked a concept of the heavenly bodies as an ordered system. Uh, and, the, and they just thought that the, 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 the heavenly bodies, the planets, the stars were just out there wandering. Just wandering around the night sky. And the word then got applied to those who wander and try to influence others to wander Specifically, in this case, to wander off of the path of confidence in God and obedience to his commands. John closely connects deceivers with antichrists. And again, who is an antichrist? As we saw in our study of 1 John, an antichrist is anyone who is acting in opposition to Christ 
or anyone seeking to stand in the place of Christ as a, a substitute or a counterfeit. Two other passages in 1 John come into view in this regard. 1 John 2.22, who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And then 1 John 4, 1 to 3, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And again, as I've shared with you, I think twice at least now in this series, John would have been actively contending against a pervasive and widespread influence of a heretic who, whose name was Serinthus. And Serinthus claimed, as, as you may recall, that Jesus and the Christ were not one and the same, that the historical Jesus at his birth was, in fact, just another Jewish boy. The Christ was a separate entity. Serinthus described the Christ as kind of an an emanation from God. Lower than an angel, but still an emanation from God. That it was only at his baptism that the Christ came upon Jesus. And then he remained there until sometime just prior to the crucifixion when he departed. So that as Jesus died... On the cross, he died as a mere human being. So Serenthus would have said that Jesus is not the eternal Son of God, and he couldn't have been our Savior because he died as a mere man. And Serenthus taught that Jesus rose from the dead, but only in a spiritual sense, not, not as a physical, historical reality. At the same time in history... Another influential system of heretical thought was brewing, which became known as Gnosticism. And, and the things that the Serinthus was teaching flowed right into that. In fact, Gnosticism is still around today in a variety of forms. But the central and essential tenet of Gnosticism was that spirit is essentially good and holy, matter is essentially evil and corrupt. So the claim that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh, fully God, fully man, was considered by them to be impossible and unacceptable. So they rejected it. They argued strenuously against it. And along with the Gnostics were the Docetists who claimed that Jesus was God, yet he wasn't really God in the flesh, but he only appeared to be. (laughs) So he didn't really suffer, and he didn't really die on the cross. He wasn't really resurrected from the dead. It only appeared that he did all of those things. So when we see John's assertions and his, his concern against the backdrop of those heresies, they begin to make a little bit more sense, don't they? The deceivers and the Antichrist are those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh and who deny that Jesus is the Christ. They stand in denial of that which is most central to a biblical view of Jesus as the eternal Son of God, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit in every divine attribute, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, 
who on the third day rose again from the dead and shortly thereafter ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. To the deceivers and the Antichrist, John adds a third category, which I'm just going to call progressives. It's a contemporary expression. It's also an ancient biblical concept. Where do, where do I see this? It's in verse 9 of Second John. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. That, that phrase, goes on ahead, translate this, translates the, the Greek word pro-agon, which literally means to go forward, to struggle forward, to wrestle forward. And John employs the word here to characterize those who transgress the limits of sound doctrine. They don't abide in the teaching of Christ. Those who identify as progressive Christians today presume to stand in judgment on historical, biblical doctrine. They claim to have greater enlightenment. And John says of the progressives then and now that they therefore do not have God, which echoes what he said in 1 John 5.12, whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. See, I don't know, I don't really understand why we call people progressives, whose doctrines and whose lifestyles whose social and political agendas are nothing but regressive and destructive. Words are funny that way. Here's what I want us to understand this morning. When you hear a new teaching that doesn't sound exactly right to you, doesn't quite pass the sniff test, you don't have to waste your time evaluating the entire system of thought that's being presented to you. You can go right to the heart of the matter and simply ask of those who are teaching it what they believe about Jesus Christ. Is he the eternal Son of God? Was he born of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit? Is he fully God and fully man? Was he Lord and Savior at his birth as the angels spoke to the shepherds? Or did he come into that at some point later in life? Was he fully God and fully man as he hung on the cross? By his death, did he offer the sacrifice that turned God's wrath away from sinful humanity? Was his death effective to make full and final payment for all of our sin? Is there anything that we need to add to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in order to be made right with God? Did he rise physically from the dead on the third day as he promised? See, every system of heretical teaching will be wrong on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Every system of heretical thought will elevate the work of man and diminish the work of Christ. Every one of them will teach that in order to receive salvation, we have to add something to the work of Christ. Things like baptism, church membership, good works, so that eventually our service to God is not a free and joyful expression of love for Him in response to His love for us, but instead it's an endless list of anxious efforts to earn His approval and our salvation. John issues two warnings in relation to the deceivers, the antichrists, and the progressives. The first is at verse 8. 
And I apologize to you who are taking notes because I goofed up and didn't include this one in your notes, but here it is. Watch yourselves. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Verse 8. None of us should ever assume that we are invulnerable to deception. There isn't anyone, any human being that is ultimately invulnerable to deception. False teachers can be subtle and insidious because their father, the devil, is subtle and insidious. He is the great deceiver. So what might watching ourselves include? I think it includes humility in light of what we know about our own capacity for wandering from God. Uh, I wrote this into my sermon before I knew we were going to sing this this morning, but there's a reason the old hymn writer penned these words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. How many of you have felt that at one point or another in your life? The rest of you are liars. It also includes, watching ourselves also includes studying God's Word so that each of us gains a clear understanding of sound biblical doctrine for ourselves. See, I know this about some of you. Some of you apparently never read the Bible for yourself. You never study it for yourself. You never study it systematically in any way. Uh, some of you are resistant to it. But, but here's where this leaves you. It, it leaves you entirely dependent on others to tell you what God's Word does or does not say. And as a result, you are super vulnerable to deception. John gives us the reason why we must watch ourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Now, I don't mistake what he's saying here. He's not suggesting that you can lose your salvation, which is the free gift of God. Once again, God never takes or once given, rather, God never takes that away. He never, ever takes it away. But notice John's prepositions. He says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. The you... are the children of the elect lady, the the members of the church, Christians. So who are the we? Well, I think the we are the apostles and elders. John's talking about himself, the other apostles, other Christian leaders. Um, and, And I think what he's saying here is that he and the other apostles, the elders and the pastors, have labored on behalf of the children of the elect lady, so that they will win their full reward on that day when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he rewards each of us according to what we have done. That's the essence, really, of pastoral ministry, is equipping the saints for ministry, equipping saints to live the lives that God has called us to live with the goal in mind that every Christian not only lives a life of effectiveness and fruitfulness in the here and now, but when they stand before God, they they receive a full reward. 
losing rewards becomes a real possibility. If we are deceived or distracted from the truth of God's Word and we live our lives in the darkness of deception. Second command is in verse 10. Do not receive them into your house. This gets down to the nitty-gritty. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. This could relate to the personal homes of the members of the church to whom John is writing. Could apply to us today. In the ancient world, hospitality was a, a high value. There were no Hilton hotels, no extended stay Americas, Airbnbs, VRBOs back then. The expectation in the Christian community was that believers who were traveling should be given lodging in the homes of other believers. That's a value I think that we need to recapture for the 21st century. But because most churches in the first century A.D. met in homes, the command could very well point to the house in which any given church was meeting. So John's command could be modified to read, don't receive false teachers into your church. By the way, just as an aside, I, I don't think that John is saying that when the Mormons show up at your door or the Jehovah's Witnesses show up at your door, you shouldn't invite them in for a cup of tea and try to lead them to Jesus. I don't think that's what John is saying. But at the same time, if you're not a strong believer, if you don't have a strong sense of God's Word, you should never do that because you yourself may succumb to deception. To my knowledge, we've never given the pulpit here at LifePoint to a false teacher. Those who teach children and youth are vetted on the basis of whether they're in agreement with our statement of beliefs. And if there's disagreement, they're not allowed to teach. The same is true of our life group leaders. It's important and it matters. See, if I was ever to wander into false teaching and you're sitting there going, (laughs) what happened to Jim? Uh, here's what I would hope would happen. I would hope that you who are mature would correct me in love. And then, if I was unwilling to receive that correction, I would hope that you would simply remove me from my role. Uh, same should apply to Evan, Steve, any future pastors of LifePoint. Well, I want to bring this to a close with some very practical questions that I hope you'll take seriously. If you're single, maybe you'll think about them, discuss them with a friend or or your life group. If you're married, I hope maybe you'll have a discussion around these questions with your spouse and your family members. Here's the first question. Who are the deceivers I am allowing into my house? Who are the deceivers I'm allowing into my house? Again, think of your house as your place of residence, your dwelling, uh, your family, more broadly maybe as the whole of your life, I would encourage you to think of prospective deceivers certainly as, as simply, uh, simply as preachers or teachers, but, but more broadly, deceivers can be influential friends, uh, family members, authors, actors and actresses, musicians, politicians, sports figures, television and radio personalities. They may not present themselves as religious figures at all, but their influence has the effect of leading you or your family members away from a simple devotion to Christ. They confuse your thoughts about Christ. They lead you to accept patterns of thought that are false and misleading. 
So who are they? Who are the deceivers I'm allowing into my house? And I want you to think about who they are, who they may be. And here's the second question. By what means are they gaining access? By what means are they gaining access? How are they getting inside of your house? How are they getting inside your mind and heart? By, by what means are they getting access to your children? See, I happen to know, because you just happened to tell me, that, that some of you, and you don't even realize you've told me, but some of you are fans of television preachers that you and I both know are false teachers. Now, they're leading you astray. You watch them because they're just so encouraging. So inspirational. But they're leading you astray. And yes, I do mean Joel Osteen. And I do mean Joyce Meyer. And I do mean Bill Johnson and Brian Houston, Rob Bell and their whole progressive posse. There are many deceivers today. Many false teachers who sound good but are teaching stuff that if you receive it and follow it will cause you to lose your reward. There are some of you who are devoted fans of a popular devotional writer who, who puts words in the mouth of God. Be very careful about that. And again, I've heard people say, well, Pastor Jim, you don't understand. It's so encouraging to me. It's so insightful. But here's what I do know. Here's what I do understand. That man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what Jesus said. Not by words that come from the pen of an author who writes words that sound like they came from the mouth of God. That's very dangerous. Be very careful that you're not deceived. So number one, who are the deceivers I'm allowing into my house? Number two, by what means are they gaining access? And then here's the third question, and then I'm done. How will I close the door? How will I close the door? And I think it's a harder question to answer because it may mean that that you're going to have to deny yourself and shut off the flow of some stuff that you actually really like. Things that are entertaining to you. Television shows that that are on the edge, but they're entertaining to you. But but, but here's the deal. They they cause you to affirm and approve things that, that you know are inconsistent with God's Word. But you laugh and you enjoy it. And you're, you're, you're intrigued by it. I'm asking you to think about that. I'm asking you to think about turning it off. It may mean that you're going to have to become far more discerning than you have historically been. Or that you'll need to seek the counsel of more mature believers who have greater discernment can help you make wise decisions about closing that door. But you must decide. You must decide. Do not receive them into your house. Do not receive them into your mind and heart. Don't allow them into the minds and hearts of your kids. I saw this quote the other day, and I, I just captured it for this message. It said, true love never opens the door to a predator. True love never opens the door to a predator. See, doors matter, walls matter, borders matter. They're necessary in this world. You must decide. And when you know the truth, when you truly know the truth, that is truly true, 
then that truth will truly set you free. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this powerful teaching in Second John. Thank you so much for inspiring John by your Holy Spirit to pen these words because they ring true down through the centuries to us today. Lord, may we take them seriously. May we be discerning Christians. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.